0: You're listening to the CyberWire Network, powered by N2K.
1: Hey, everybody. Dave here with a quick request. If you could leave us a review on whatever platform it is you listen to this show, it'll help spread the word and grow our audience. So please take a few minutes and share why you think this podcast is a valuable part of your day. Thanks. Here's the show.
0: number one responsibility of the U.S. government is to protect itself. Before the U.S. government starts telling the private sector what it should do, it really should stop living in the glass house, where its own cybersecurity is literally much worse than most private sector networks.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's Law and Policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hi, Ben. Hi, Dave. On this week's show, I've got the story of a photographer who came up short in an online copyright claim. Ben wonders if the Supreme Court is going to take a look at the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. And later in the show, my conversation with Dmitry Alperovich. He is the co-founder and former CTO at CrowdStrike and we will be discussing the recently published Cybersecurity Solarium Report. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover please contact your attorney we'll be right back after a word from our sponsors and now a word from our sponsor six cents six provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline it and security operations To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. And we are back. Ben, before we kick things off, we have a little bit of follow-up. Uh-oh. We got letters, Ben. We got lots and lots of letters. That can't. That can't be good. Letters well, are not good. Well, they were. all They were friendly and uh, they were kind letters. But okay, many that's... people wanted to point out that a couple of weeks ago we talked about the concept of force majeure, and you pointed out that, like many things in the legal system, force majeure is Latin. And our kind listeners let us know that no, 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 no. Or I should say, no, 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 no. Non. <laughs> Force majeure is French.
2: Yeah, let's just say I was, uh, I was testing all of you guys to make sure you were listening. <laughs> uh, how could a word like majeure be be french i just have how no ca- idea
1: how could it be anything but french i, I know
2: yeah <laughs> i don't know where my head was just let's 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 blame it on the pandemic and uh, i say lack of <laughs> we'll sleep move on yeah you take your lumps
1: and move on
2: <laughs> exactly all right but if you want to send hate mail you know to uh our lovely yeah. podcast I'm, i don't know um, i'm i'm happy to accept it <laughs> i will eat crow I- on this one
1: Yeah, maybe all your students should get, uh, you know, 10 bonus points for the professor making a mistake like this. They probably deserve (laughs) it after this, yeah. All right, well, thanks to everybody who wrote in. We do appreciate it. Let's move on to our stories this week. My story is uh, an interesting one. This is uh, a copyright story. A court ruled recently that Mashable can embed a professional photographer's photo without breaking copyright law, and this is all because of Instagram's terms of service. So uh, this court in New York, this is a district court in New York, determined that uh, a woman named Stephanie Sinclair, when she posted her photos on Instagram, that meant that other people could embed those photos because Instagram has an embedding function like many things online. And uh, basically this court is saying that she gave up her rights to those photos for for other people to embed them. She she lost control over whether or not people could embed those photos or not. What's your take here? Here, Ben.
2: Yeah, so as soon as she decided to post the photograph on Instagram, she forfeited her copyright claim because the Instagram Terms of Services say that you are granting Instagram a sub license to use the public content that you post for the users who share it. This decision from the district court came from Judge Kimba Wood. Those of you who are 1990s historians might remember that she was Bill Clinton's first attorney general nominee, I believe. Mm. Uh, so she's a pretty prominent judge. And the 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 decision seems relatively simple to me. This is a terms of service issue. It applies specifically to Instagram, and it means that there can't be any copyright claims when another website embeds an Instagram photo. Hmm. One interesting argument that this photographer made who initiated the lawsuit is that Instagram sort of owns the market for the sharing of photography and you know she's a photographer if she wants to share her work and she wants to retain that intellectual property but she also wants to get a wide audience for her pictures she's gonna post them on instagram and she really doesn't have any other choice that is the, the photo sharing application What the judge is saying here is, yes, I recognize that. Yes, they have the largest market share. And I recognize as a judge that that's a very difficult decision. But this is ultimately the decision you made, Madam Plaintiff. You decided to post this photograph. And as soon as you did, you forfeited your copyright claim. So Hmm. in the exact words of Judge Wood, the plaintiff made her choice.
1: Yeah, this is interesting to me. A couple of reasons. It reminds me of uh, back when... YouTube was brand new and was just sort of getting up to speed. I I think this was back in the 90s, I suppose. There was a lot of concern, a lot of gnashing of teeth and wringing of hands over uh, whether or not if you uploaded a video to YouTube, if you gave YouTube all the rights to your video. And they could use it for anything. They could sell it. And of course, these days, it's impossible to imagine a, a company, for example, not uploading their, their corporate image video to YouTube. It's become a standard thing. And it seems as though many of those
2: concerns didn't really play out. But uh, this reminded me of that. Right. And I think Instagram now plays the same role in the photography market that YouTube played in the video sharing market. In other words, for marketing purposes, whether you are a photographer like this plaintiff was or you are a company, you are going to need to post on Instagram to reach the largest number of eyes. And it's sort of a public policy problem that you will not have any intellectual property rights once you put that in on Instagram. If there were an enterprising company that came along and said, well, we're going to be the photo sharing company that will protect your intellectual privacy rights. We're going to prohibit embeds. We're going to say that there is not a transferable sub license to that photo. You know, maybe that company could increase its own market share and give a competitor to Instagram. Do I see that yeah. happening? Not really. I mean, Instagram is is, <laughs> is so prevalent in our lives. You know, most of us wake up and check our Instagram stories. And we're sort of stuck with the sub-licensing agreement that they've foisted upon us. And given their large market share, there's unfortunately not much we can do about it. And I think what makes this case interesting is we're talking about a professional photographer. So she doesn't retain the rights in her own professional work. I mean, imagine that in any other context. If I wrote some sort of policy paper and, you know, I had all these original ideas and it was so brilliant. And as soon as I saved it as a PDF, then anybody in the entire world could embed it on their website without attributing it to me um, or, you know, giving me a copyright claim. I would not be very pleased with that.
1: (laughs) Well, and I wonder if Instagram could provide some more control here, if if you could have a A pro-level account, you know, maybe charge a fee or something where someone can share their photos on Instagram, but that's it. You can limit, you can choose whether or not embedding is active on some sort of basis per photo or per account or something like that and, and maybe pay for that privilege.
2: Right, exactly. And we see those types of privileges on a bunch of different types of online services. You know, I think of LinkedIn Pro, where I, of course, want to see who has viewed my LinkedIn profile, but I don't want other people to see that I've viewed their profiles. So I can pay (laughs) for the privilege of knowing who's looked at my profile without sharing which profiles I've looked at. Perhaps Instagram could do something like that. Or you get Instagram Pro And you can opt in or opt out to the embed function. I I mean, I think that might be the most equitable solution here. I think what the court is saying is that's a solution that Instagram will have to come up with if it becomes a big enough problem for its user base or its customers. But that's not a problem that this court is going to solve. I see. So, you know, I think it was sort of passing the buck down to the private organization in this case.
1: Right. You made your choice when you signed up and agreed to the EULA, which
2: we, we all read word by word, right? Absolutely. Yeah. We all <laughs> spent 10 hours reading the 600 pages of uh, the Instagram terms of service. And then we were so bored with it, we didn't even want to post any photos. But, right. You know, right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, that's my story this week. What do you have for us, Ben? My story comes from the publication Reason, and it is from Professor Oren Kerr. Frequent listeners of this podcast probably know I'm a bit of a fanboy for this <laughs> professor, but he is one of the foremost digital privacy professors out there. So I, I take what he says very seriously. And this is about a potential Supreme Court case on the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. This act was passed in the 1980s. It was a pre-internet piece of legislation. And the primary purpose for the act was to prevent the sort of hacking that existed at the time, which is obviously very different than the hacking that exists in the Internet age. And there's been a long running disagreement among courts as to what exactly the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act does. What does it mean by unauthorized access? So mm. there's one strain that basically says unauthorized access means somebody has stolen a password or, or gained unauthorized access through nefarious means. They've literally hacked into it or you know they've broken cryptography. Okay. That's sort of what one set of courts has interpreted. And that's more of an originalist interpretation of this law because if you look at the legislative of history, that seems to be what Congress was trying to prevent. The other strain of thought from different judicial circuits is that it can be a violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act if you violate a website's terms of service. So even if you didn't hack into the website, even if you didn't break their cryptography, you just use that site for a purpose that is not authorized according to the terms of service, then you could be prosecuted under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. So there's this case that has made its way through the court. It's actually right now in front of the Supreme Court. They're considering whether to grant certiorari, whether to hear the case. It is Van Buren v. United States. And the justices finally have the opportunity to resolve this circuit split. According to Professor Kerr, the court is likely to hear this case, and we should find out in the next few days whether they've decided to hear it. Just a little bit of background on the case itself. So Mr. Van Buren, it's not the president, uh, nor is it the Van Buren boys (laughs) of, of Seinfeld fame. He was a police sergeant. He ran a search through a police license plate database, but he didn't do so for, quote, law enforcement purposes. He did so to search for a cash payment from an individual working as part of a police sting. So it was an unauthorized use of a database. He was charged under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act and he was convicted. This was appealed to the 11th Circuit. The 11th Circuit affirmed the conviction on the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act because it was the 11th Circuit, one of the judicial circuits across the country, that has held this interpretation that any violation of the terms of service of any sort of database or any Unauthorized use of a database that somebody already has permission to be in violates the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. And Professor Kerr seems to think that this is the perfect opportunity for the Supreme Court to resolve this question. So I hope they grant certiorari on this case. I think we do need some clarity because, as Professor Kerr says, if the interpretation of the 11th Circuit holds, And if there's this broad interpretation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, then pretty much all of us have violated the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Hmm. And I don't think so. So he talks about how it is a violation of Facebook's terms and services to falsify your location, which he did. And he admitted that in an affidavit to a court, mostly to make an academic point that, look, if you take this very rigid interpretation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, where you are criminalizing mere violations of terms of service, which as we just talked about in our previous segment, no one reads, then you're going to be criminalizing a lot of what we would probably deem to be normal online behavior. And what Kerr is saying, and I think what others have said, including the Electronic Frontier Foundation in a brief they sent to the court, is we don't want the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act to just be a very general crime where you can arrest and charge people for doing bad things on the internet. It was created for a very specific purpose, and that was to prevent hacking into systems in an unauthorized manner. And so I think there's sort of broad agreement in the privacy and civil liberties community that this interpretation that the 11th Circuit has and that they they had in this Van Buren case could lead to some very, very problematic results. And I think that's why uh, it's useful for the Supreme Court to weigh
1: in. Walk us through how this would Play out if the Supreme Court decides to take it on.
2: If they grant certiorari, there would be. Wait, a- is that a, is that a Latin term, uh, Ben? I'm going to Google it just to make sure. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm not actually going to Google it. That that is a Latin term. Right, Although I, I'm sure we're going to have users write in and be like, no, actually, it's Italian. and it's ancient to, Greek. Yeah, yeah, I'll have to uh, <laughs> eat crow two weeks in a row. I, I don't know my classics, people. I'm sorry. Okay. So if they grant cert, uh, then they would most likely hold oral arguments in the next Supreme Court session, which begins in October. Depending on the state of the world, that would probably be a live hearing. But we just found out that the Supreme Court is conducting uh, for the first time online oral arguments in the next couple Hmm. of months due to the COVID epidemic, which now for the first time we've mentioned that on this podcast.
1: <laughs> we were so close. We were so close our to making entire it through episode without mentioning it. Oh, I know.
2: <laughs> or we lose our prize? Oh well. <laughs> so yeah, they they would have the oral argument in the fall, and they would come to a decision that would have nationwide applicability sometime. You know, I would guess probably early in the in the next year. But we're probably at least you know seven or eight months from having any sort of resolution on this issue. And until we do, there are different rules depending on which you know judicial You happen to reside in. Here in Maryland, we are in the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. If you happen to be in the Eleventh Circuit, that's where you would uh, be subject to this interpretation. And that applies to uh, Mr. Van Buren.
1: Now, from a legal point of view, help me understand here when the Supreme Court makes a decision, how does that affect? The decisions that the lower courts have made along the way, is it retroactive if they decide that they don't
2: go along with decisions other courts had made? Do those cases get revisited? Generally, there's what's called a good faith exception. If law enforcement were following the prevailing law at the time when they charge somebody or make an arrest, the Supreme Court would generally not retroactively vacate those charges. Now, as it applies to Mr. Van Buren himself, he would be the party in the case. So it would have the effect of vacating his conviction and he would no longer be subject to whatever penalties he would suffer as a result of that violation. Uh, It would also mean that in the future no matter which judicial circuit you were in, you could only be charged under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, or depending on what the Supreme Court says. If they decided that it had to be a traditional hack in order for there to be an offense under the CFAA, then that would be the rule for all future cases going forward, uh, notwithstanding which judicial circuit you happen to reside in.
1: All right. Well, uh, we will stay tuned on that one. Uh, Certainly interesting developments. Yes. All right. uh, We don't have a listener on the line this week, but uh, we would love to hear your questions. If you have one, you can call in at 410-618-3720. That's 410-618-3720. You can also email us your question to caveat at cyberwire.com. Coming up next, my conversation with Dmitry Alperovich. He is the co-founder and former CTO at CrowdStrike, and we will be discussing the recently published cybersecurity Solarium report. But first, a word from our sponsors. Visit N-E-T-S-K-O-P-E And we are back. Uh, ben uh, recently had the pleasure of a very interesting conversation with Dmitry Alperovich. He is the co-founder and former CTO at CrowdStrike. Uh, he recently left CrowdStrike and he started a nonpartisan nonprofit policy accelerator and uh, the focus of our conversation is the recently published cybersecurity Solarium report. Here's my conversation with Dmitry
0: Alperovich. Well, the most important thing about the Solarium Commission and why it's different from so many other commissions that we have seen in the space, uh, probably dozens upon dozens over the years, is that this was a commission that was organized by Congress, involving congressional members, and most importantly, doing its work for Congress itself. And many of the very thorny issues that we face in the policy space in cyber actually do require legislative fixes, and that's why it's so important to have had Congress's buy-in uh, and indeed their interest in this from the very beginning and that is why in many ways the other commissions have failed because they they were not really including congressional members from the get- go as uh, the Solarium commission has done and not focused on specific legislative language and proposals as the staff is now working on with with members of Congress. So that's what makes it very different. Some of the recommendations, of course, have been around for years. The commission members themselves have publicly stated that their goal was not necessarily to come up with radically new ideas, but to really to survey the landscape and figure out what was out there that was useful to leverage in order to move the ball forward. Uh, There are a number of key concepts that, that I think are actually Pretty important that the commission has highlighted. And the way I think about the, the problem of cybersecurity, at least on the defensive side, is really in three different areas. The first area is how do we protect the government itself, uh, certainly the civilian .gov networks. And in fact, this is an area that gets often the least amount of attention in these reports and uh, congressional oversight uh, hearings, uh, which is a huge mistake. Uh, you know, from my perspective the number one responsibility of the U.S. government is to protect itself. Before the U.S. government starts telling the private sector what it should do, it really should stop living in the glass house, where its own cybersecurity is literally much worse than most private sector networks. And we need to take care of that first and foremost. I think the vision for solving that is at least the one that I have is a pretty ambitious one. and, And I understand why the commission couldn't adopt uh, that wholesale. But the the thing that they came up with, which um, I really like, is is the idea that you strengthen the power of CISA, this new agency that was formed in the last legislation uh, that came about about a year ago, and giving it actually the authority to hunt uh, continuously across dot networks, which will be a significant step forward in one, clarifying their responsibilities, because right now CISA is a Cybersecurity agency that is actually not, for the most part, um, doing the cybersecurity of the U.S. government. It it is doing it from a sort of an advisor perspective, but not having actual operational responsibility. And I think moving it towards having some operational skin in the game is a good thing for both CISA and for the rest of the federal government. So I, I think that that recommendation is a really, really good one because it will actually give us ability to understand which adversaries are now on those networks give us a sense of how they're getting in so we can learn from that experience and uh, focus on, first and foremost, kicking them out, but secondly, on how do we shore up those networks uh, to make it more difficult for them to come back. So really loving that recommendation. There's a second one that's sort of a color to that, which is empowering of the Defense Department and, and more specifically Cyber Command to continuously hunt across the dot mil networks, the U.S. military networks. Similar principle where... We need to understand which threat actors are already inside our sensitive networks and giving really the authority to Cyber Command to bypass sort of the entrenched bureaucracy of different combatant command services and others to really empower them to continuously hunt in those networks. I think both of those agencies CISA on the civilian side and US Cyber Command on the on the military side will need to evolve further over the years where they would actually need to be given responsibility to provide operational security for the those networks their respective networks beyond just hunting so being actually responsible for protecting them going forward, that that's a huge change and, and a huge responsibility that will take many, many years to implement. But that's the model, effectively, that we're starting to see in other countries where there is a centralization of cybersecurity expertise within the government and responsibility and authority as well. So those were the two that were focused on the government. On the private sector side, I'm actually a contrarian where I believe that we actually now know how to do cybersecurity well. And some of the best companies out there Certainly the, the big platform companies, the Google's of the world, the Microsoft's and many others are doing really, really well in defending their networks every single day against the most sophisticated adversaries, nation states and organized criminal groups are trying to infiltrate those networks. So the issue is not necessarily about sort of uh, having Manhattan projects, if you will, of what do we do and how do we come up with new capabilities? The capabilities exist. The really good companies are well ahead. Of everyone else and, and understanding how to leverage them and operationalizing them. What we need to do is to make sure that everyone else, at least in terms of our critical infrastructure and other important businesses, are going to be on the same level. And for that, I do think we need some regulation. I think it needs to be lightweight and non-prescriptive. I'm not a fan, uh, particularly in this area, of regulations that are overly prescriptive. Of uh, you know, you shall patch, you shall adopt two-factor any of those recommendations, which on the face of it may seem sensible, but actually may be the wrong thing to do for a particular business. Um, you know, for example, if you're in the industrial control system space, patching may be literally the worst thing for you to do because patches have literally taken down more infrastructure than any piece of malware in that space. So you want to be really, really careful about how you patch. It doesn't mean you shouldn't, but it means that you should not be rushing to do it either. And whenever you're doing something, whether it's patching, whether it's two-factor, it by definition, because resources are constrained, means you're not doing something else. And I would much rather have companies figure out themselves what is the order of priority that they need to have to apply some of these recommendations versus having the government dictate for them without the knowledge of their specific operational requirements, uh, resourcing requirements, and so forth. But what I think the regulation should do is have accountability be placed on the boards of these companies and their CEOs to take cybersecurity seriously, to hold their own internal security teams accountable and really focus on outcomes versus prescriptive plans that companies should implement. So one of the recommendations that I really, really loved in the commission was this 4.4.4 section, which says that the commission recommends amending the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, which is the act that was uh, put in place after the Enron scandals in the early 2000s to regulate public companies better. And they they recommend to to amend that act to include some cybersecurity reporting requirements. And what I'd love to see the section is is a little bit vague on what it is that they actually want to have in the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. But I think the idea is right to at least start with public companies, which are regulated, of course, by the SEC, is to tell them, start tracking certain metrics. Um, The way I'd love to see it is that they track them internally without even having to report them to the government, because if you're reporting to the government, as we've seen, government security is not the best. And uh, you don't necessarily want um, the government making it worse by having attackers break into government networks, steal that data, and then figure out who's doing well or not, and use that essentially as a target list. So um, I would love for companies to track that internally, uh, focus on outcomes. One of the metrics that I've been talking about for years with boards of directors and companies and getting really, really good reception is what I call the 11060 rule, which is one that measures speed of, re- of detection, speed of investigation, speed of response, where the best companies try to uh, strive for detecting an intrusion uh, on average in one minute investigating in 10 minutes and then responding and remediating it in one hour. Not everyone necessarily needs to be at that level. So, you know, people shouldn't be focusing on the numbers themselves as much as focusing on the model of tracking uh, uh, their speed of detection, speed of investigation, speed of response and trying to optimize that. And if you're tracking that on a quarterly basis, if you're setting goals around those types of metrics and reporting them to the board. Then the board has visibility in how well you're actually doing, how fast you are at detecting threats and and responding to them. And the the nice thing about requiring companies, at least public companies, to track those internal outcome-driven metrics is that if there is a breach, if there is a consequential event, inevitably nowadays you have lawsuits that are launched around those types of events. And in the event of a lawsuit, those metrics will be discoverable by the other side. And they'll be able to take a look at them and say, "Well, wait a second. They continuously miss on their own internal, so they set goals around those metrics. Was the board aware on a quarterly basis and still did nothing in response? So there's a clear case of negligence here. Or perhaps they set goals that were too um, lenient compared to what the rest of the industry was setting. And uh, again, the board was negligent. So it's a way to to get the board to focus one on outcomes to to hold them accountable." through uh, potential litigation that may uh, result coming out of a breach and and negligence claims and get them to not necessarily focus on technical details of how they should be securing them, but getting them to focus, again, on holding security teams accountable. Just like most members of the board uh, are not experts in sales, but every single one of them that I've met certainly understands whether a company made their quarterly earnings numbers or not. Uh, very, very simple and black and white sort of calculation of here's a number, did we make it or do we not make it? And then holding companies' leadership accountable for those results. We need the same sort of accountability in the cybersecurity space. And too often, when I've been in board meetings with huge public companies, Fortune 500 companies, and I've witnessed presentations by CISOs, oftentimes it's a laundry list of projects they're working on, and I'm looking at board members, and they're on their phones, not paying attention because their eyes are just glazing over over all the technical mumbo jumbo. And it's just not productive. Um, Instead, they should be focused on talking about strategy and talking about the outcomes that they're achieving and what goals uh, they're setting for themselves.
1: Now, in terms of urgency here, what do you suppose is a realistic timeline for rolling out some of these policies?
0: As I mentioned, the great thing here is that the commission in- included members of Congress, but-, but more importantly, the two co-chairs of the commission, Mike Gallagher, who's a phenomenal congressman on the ha- House side uh, from Wisconsin, and Senator Angus King, also very well versed in those issues on the Senate side. As the two co-chairs, they're now sponsoring legislation this year. Now we'll see what happens with the uh, COVID response that may slow things down. But they are very anxious to take some of those recommendations, not the whole laundry list of hundreds that are um, almost 100 that um, the, the commission put together, but the most important ones from their perspective and pushing them forward. One of the things that they are uh, well, well aware of is that some of those recommendations can easily slide into what's called the NDA, the National Defense Authorization Act, which has to pass every single year, which fa- funds the military so there's no way that Congress can't not pass that legislation. So if they can slide some of those recommendations into the NDA, we can actually get a bill this year and take effect in the new fiscal year. You know, we'll have to see how the pandemic crisis actually impacts this. The nice thing about cyber is that it is still a relatively bipartisan issue. And almost every year, if you look at the last five or six years, we've had some sort of cyber bill pass in Congress which may surprise people, given that nothing else uh, really has much of a chance to pass. Uh, But but on these issues, there is a great deal of urgency. There is a great deal of willingness on on both Republicans and Democrats to do something. And the great thing about the commission is that you had staff literally not just write these high level recommendations, but they're now working on specific legislative language, working with lawyers that they can give to staff in Congress and say, here you go slide this into the belt and let's get things moving.
1: Were there any areas uh, where you feel as though they missed the mark where they came up short?
0: Well, I think some of the recommendations in terms of some of the bureaucratic changes that they recommended, I think are probably not the right ones at this point in time. You know, creating new agencies or new bureaucratic positions, I don't think necessarily will solve the problem. And will simply slow us down just by the nature of the fact how long it takes to stand up a new bureaucratic organization and for it to find its uh, legs and and, uh, really get things moving. So I could see some of those recommendations sort of if you are starting with a blank slate would make sense, but we're not. We've got a very urgent problem that we need to solve right now. You sort of you go to war with the army you have, as Don Rumsold once said, and we've got to leverage the resources we have to try to address this as, as quickly as possible. Some of those recommendations may make sense five or ten years from now, as we improve the situation and can start looking at how should we be reorganized for the future. Uh, but I don't think they make a lot of sense right now. The one that I thought was really, really good, and the one that they uh, sort of highlighted at the very beginning, was on election security. Obviously, very timely this year and they rightly called out. The most urgent thing that we need to do in in, in elections is making sure that there is a verifiable, auditable, paper-based voting systems in in every precinct, county, and and state in this country. And unfortunately, we still have states, including counties and battleground states, that don't have paper-based records and their voting systems. And if you want to ensure that voters have trust in the election systems, you just absolutely have to have that and it was good to see that called out and specifically calling on the Election Assistance Commission to receive additional funding to support states and localities to purchase that equipment.
2: All right, interesting conversation. What do you think, Ben? So first of all, another huge get for the caveat podcast. And I want to thank uh, <laughs> Dimitri for participating in the interview. It was very interesting and it was a good summary of the Solarium Commission report. I would suggest that people read the executive summary of the report. It's 22 pages, which is long for an executive summary, but it does do a good job of delving into the issues that the commission looked at. He made a couple really interesting points on the public sector side. I think having some sort of centralized agency agencies including ones that that already exist like the cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency be coordinating agencies for cybersecurity purposes is extremely important. We can do that in a way where there's proper congressional oversight, but having a centralized entity, you know, is something that I think will improve coordination among federal government agencies and with the states. On the private sector, he seemed to say that, and maybe this is sort of contrary to public belief, but the private sector generally knows what it's doing in terms of protecting its own network. They're good at what they do. And we don't want Any sort of federal entity to pass down to these private entities on tablets, you know, this is exactly what you should do. You should patch this. You should do that. Keeping the advice general and allowing those private entities to act with speed and agility based on their current circumstances, I think, is something that is also crucially important. And then election security, which I'm glad you guys talked about. It's obviously a big problem this year. We're in a presidential election, particularly when we might have a lot of people who are voting by mail or voting absentee. Mm-hmm. You know, it can be difficult to keep a paper trail. That's why I'm glad he sort of mentioned that as a major area of concern. But it was a it was a fascinating interview, and I definitely encourage people. I'm being realistic. I know you're not going to read the whole cyberspace Solarium <laughs> mission report unless you're uh, nerds like us. But um, I think the executive summary is well worth your time.
1: And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of DataTribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our thanks to the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security for their participation. You can learn more at mdchhs.com. Our coordinating producers are Kelsey Bond and Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And
2: I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening.